from First uh, Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, you know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know what he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Give me liberty or give me death. That was famously said in the lead-up to the Revolutionary War by American politician Patrick Henry. He made a speech to the Second Virginia Convention in which he famously concluded with that line, Give me liberty or give me death. Well, in the ancient city of Corinth, people were saying something similar, and they were saying something just as passionately, but it was far less inspiring. It was, Give me liberty and give me lunch. Give me liberty and give me my lunch. Now, now, why were they saying that? What, what does that mean? And why did lunch become all of a sudden so important? You know, since we just took a short break from Easter, let's take a minute to remember where we are today. We're returning to our study of the letter of 1 Corinthians. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was an utter disaster. It was a mess. And so Paul is writing a letter to them to address the mess. He's addressing first a report that he received about the church in Corinth. And secondly, it seems that some in Corinth had written Paul a letter. And so he was responding to their letter. You know, first we learned early on in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 11, that he'd gotten a report. It says there, for there's, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. So Paul had received a negative report. There was quarreling, there was infighting, there, there was pride, and it was dividing the church against one another. And around the same time, he also received a letter from some of those who were in the church in Corinth with letters addressing certain questions. And so Paul wanted to address those questions. He wanted to address the report he heard, and he wanted to address the questions that he had received. And so the section of the letter that we're in now might be considered question and answer time with the Apostle Paul. Paul started a couple of weeks ago. We heard him in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He said, 
Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. The matters about which you wrote. He's responding here in this section and forward to questions that were sent to him. And as we've noted, every conversation has two sides. And so it can make it a little tricky for us to understand because we only have one side of the conversation. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, we have Paul's side of the conversation, and we have to kind of piece together the Corinthians' side of the conversation from quotes that Paul gives us and from the responses that he makes to their questions. And so, for example, in today's section of Scripture, which Alexander just read for us, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 starts, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, from the opening, it seems that some in the church in Corinth had written to Paul about the issue of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And then Paul is quoting them, saying something to the they said something to the effect of all of us possess knowledge. So what's going on with food sacrificed to idols and this idea of possessing knowledge? What's the relationship between these two and what does it have to do with liberty and lunch? Well, in the first century Corinth, pagan temples functioned like butcher shops, like meat markets, and like banqueting halls. When you went to make a sacrifice to one of the gods, you only gave a portion, an actual portion of the animal was offered to the god and burned up, but that left a lot of animal remaining. And the rest of the meat was butchered, and then it was often eaten in banqueting rooms that were attached to the temple. So, for example, if you brought a large animal to sacrifice, your family might not be able to eat an entire cow. So you'd throw a dinner party. You'd invite your friends, you'd invite your neighbors to come and to join you at the feast in one of these banqueting halls after you offered your cow as a sacrifice. And moreover, sometimes trade guilds or clubs or private dinner parties would be held in these banqueting rooms. And any extra meat that was left over from the sacrifices that that couldn't be eaten right there and then might be put up for sale at a discount in the marketplace. And in that time, since meat was really expensive, the only way that some people could afford meat was to buy it from these temples. Now, we need to remember that those who had come into the church in Corinth had come out of pagan worship. For years and years, maybe for their entire lives, they had gone to these temples and they had feasted before these gods. They had offered animals and sacrifice to them. They had eaten the meat of that sacrifice. They had purchased that meat and eaten it in their homes. For years and years, they had worshipped God by the eating of this meat. But now everything's changed. Those in Corinth have left that way and they've come to Jesus. They've forsaken their old life and the worship of these idols, but now they're left wondering, well, can I still eat the meat that was sacrificed to those idols? I mean, I unquestionably now trust Jesus I've completely forsaken those so-called gods that I used to worship. But, but now, so if I don't eat it as an act of worship, do I have the liberty just to eat my lunch? Do I have the liberty to eat the meat that I purchased then from that marketplace? Can, can I eat that? And if invited, could I join one of my friends at one of those feasts in the banqueting room as long as I abstain from participating in the sacrifice that came before it? You know, this was the question. This was what 
lunch had to do with things, and this was what liberty had to do with things. What liberty do I have to eat food sacrificed to idols? And so Paul opened up, we heard him in the first verse, he quoted the Corinthians, all of us possess knowledge. So some of the Corinthians were saying, well, all of us possess knowledge. What do they mean by we possess knowledge? And how did that affect the eating of food sacrificed to idols? Well, we find the answer to what type of knowledge he's talking about in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know. We know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. So the knowledge to which they referred was the knowledge that idols aren't real because there's only one true God. And so the conclusion is if idols aren't real, if there's really nothing to them because there's only one true God, then I have the liberty to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols because that meat is fine. It's uncontaminated. It's untainted because we know that idols are nothing. They have no power. They have no existence. So possessing this knowledge, I have liberty to eat my lunch even though my beef came from Baal and my mutton was sacrificed to Molech. I know that these so-called gods are actually nothing. Only the Lord is God. Therefore, this meat is fine. So give me liberty and give me my lunch. Now, what I want us to notice is how Paul responds to this argument from the Corinthians. Notice how Paul responds. In response to those who wrote this, who, who summarized this to him, he essentially says back to them, you all have logic. You all have the logic right, but do you have the love right? You all have the logic right, but do you have the love right? Because Paul agrees with those who write. He goes, your knowledge is correct. What you've written to me is true. You have logic, but what about love? Because listen to what Paul wrote back in verses 5 and 6. He says, although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, now when Paul says there in in verse 5 that there are many lowercase g gods and lowercase l lords, he's not saying that there are other gods equal to the one true God. However, we do live in a universe populated by lesser lowercase powers. When Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he encouraged them and encourages us today to remember the spiritual battle that's happening all the time. In Ephesians 6.12, he says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul affirms there are rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. They're lowercase g gods, lowercase l lords, but there's only one true uppercase g god. There's only one all-powerful god. There's only one god who is supreme over all, and that's who we serve. And in verse 6, Paul seems to restate and expand upon the Jewish Shema. The Jewish Shema. The Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And it's the first word of the prayer that we find in Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohimu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
And to this day, observant Jews say the Shema twice a day, and they consider it to be the most important part of the Jewish prayer service. These are the first words you're supposed to speak in the morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They're the last words that you're supposed to speak when you go to bed at night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Shema is recited in the synagogue when the Torah scroll is taken out to be read, and it's read again and recited throughout the worship service. These words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, are central to Jewish worship and the Jewish understanding of who God is. It's the most fundamental of Israel's creeds. And what it means is if the Lord is one, then there is no other. There's no room for any other God, for the Lord is one. Just a few chapters before the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord spoke through Moses in Deuteronomy 4.39, saying, Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. There is none other that can rival God. There is none other greater than God. There's none as great as God. God is one. There is no other. And in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 8, we hear Paul affirm this and really expand it. He says, here, O church in Corinth, there is one God from whom and for whom and through whom we exist, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is one. Now, now notice here that Paul puts Jesus Christ on equal footing with God the Father. Another statement of the Trinity. God the Father and Jesus Christ are one. And it is from Him and for Him and through Him that we exist. God is one and there is no other. And we know that and we believe that. So Paul affirms to the Corinthians, yes, your knowledge is correct. There's only one God. The Lord is one. And if there's only one true God, then the gods of the nations are not gods. They're fakes, hollow imitations. They're wannabes. But they're not God. As the Lord had declared through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 10.5, he said, Their idols, the idols of the nations, are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. We find the prophets regularly mocking the idols, the gods of the nations, saying these are not gods. They don't have the power to do evil. They don't have the power to do good because there's only one true God. The idols are impotent. And if we understand that idols have no power, then we know that they have no power to taint or to change the meat that's sacrificed for them. Therefore, we have the knowledge that eating meat sacrificed to idols is acceptable. I have the liberty, so let me eat my lunch. And Paul agrees with the Corinthians, you do have the liberty to eat your lunch. Your logic is airtight. However, However, as you decide what to put on the menu, remember that there's more than logic to consider. There's love. There's love. Clearly, those in Corinth who were insisting, give me liberty and give me lunch, they were exercising their liberty with no consideration as the effect that it was having on others around them. Their knowledge and their understanding were puffing them up. That's what we heard in verse 1. Verse 1, again, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love 
builds up. You know, the, the word, the phrase that's translated there is puffed up. We've already seen it multiple times in this letter. A number of times in chapter 4, again in chapter 5. Here we have it again. We're going to find it later. Because this was a problem in the church in Corinth. Because, friends, this is a problem always for us. Knowledge puffs up. It makes us arrogant. This same word is translated as arrogant in chapter 5. It puffs us up. Those in Corinth thought they possessed some special knowledge, a greater depth. I have a more mature understanding. And they were puffed up. They were arrogant. They were full of themselves. You know, as one famous preacher used to say, some Christians grow, others just swell. And the danger of that kind of knowledge is that it can swell us up. Knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. And that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. Their knowledge was puffing them up. I have the liberty to eat my lunch regardless of others who think differently. Because clearly there were some in Corinth that didn't have the same knowledge that these people claimed to possess. Look at verse 7. Paul even says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, now presumably, there were some who were younger in the faith, who, who had only more recently come to Christ and only more recently left the regular worship of these gods in the temple. And so they were not as sure, not as certain, not as strong as those that had probably been with Christ for longer. And having been saved out of the pagan idolatry, they just couldn't comprehend, well, why do these people still want to be part of it? I was just saved out of it. It was horrible. Why do they still want to buy meat from that market? You know, because of its association with idols, these weaker Christians were were struggling with the belief that the meat sacrificed to the idols was inherently immoral rather than understanding the misuse or overuse of something that was good. Uh, A contemporary illustration, if you grew up in a home where alcohol was regularly misused and abused, you might come to believe that alcohol itself is evil instead of understanding that it's not in itself evil, but the misuse, the overuse, and the abuse of it is putting to evil something that is in and of itself good. You know, Paul also wrote to his young protege, Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul warned about those who forbid the marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. See, Paul says, marriage is not evil, meat is not evil, alcohol is not evil, everything created by God is good. However, we as humans, we twist it, we abuse it, we misuse it, we overuse something good. We put it to evil uses. And that's where the evil lies, not in the item itself, but in our uses of it. And friends, uh, while our minds might understand that the item is good, the fact is it takes longer sometimes for our hearts to understand. 
our habits of responding and feeling can take a long time to change. When you've believed something or practiced something or had an attitude for so long, it doesn't just change overnight. And so some in Corinth were still young and they were struggling with the liberty of those that felt they could freely eat their lunch of meat sacrificed from those idols. And so in today's passage, Paul writes to these stronger Christians and he says, yes, you all have knowledge and you clearly understand the truth that all that God created is good and you have the liberty to eat your lunch. But more important than exercising your liberty is exercising your love. More important than liberty, church, is love. In verses 2 and 3, Paul essentially says to those puffed up by knowledge, you think you have special knowledge that's making you arrogant, causing you to believe that you're somehow more important than others, somehow closer to God. And if you think that, you're not as knowledgeable as you think you are. It means you still have a lot to learn. Because Paul says in verse 3, love is the mark of those who know and are known by God. Love is the mark. Those who truly possess knowledge, those who really know and are known by God, are not those who insist, give me liberty to eat my lunch. Those who know and are known by God are those who proclaim, give me liberty so that I might love. Paul says, yes, you have the liberty to eat your lunch, but is lunch really that important? Is lunch really that important? Again, look at verses 8 through 11. Food won't commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And the brother for whom? Christ died. So Paul says your lunch ultimately won't bring you closer to or further away from God. So remember that love is more important than lunch. You may have the liberty to have your lunch, but more important than that liberty is your love. Paul writes, your knowledge may be right, but your love may be wrong. Church, we've got to remember that one. Your knowledge may be right, but your love may be wrong. And for those who really know and are known by God are not those who have special insight or extra knowledge. It's those who use their liberty, use their freedom in Christ to love others. They're not puffed up destroying their brother for whom Christ died, but in love they build up one another. Paul talks about how serious this is in verse 12. He says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's serious. How we love one another is a reflection of how we love Christ. You might remember Jesus' words in the parable that he told in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. In the conclusion at the judgment, he separated the sheep from the goats. And he said in verse 40, The king answered the sheep, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And on the other side of the judgment, he said to the goats in verse 45, 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And Paul writes here, You're sinning against your brother. You're sinning against Christ. Friends, that is how seriously we should take this call to love. And Paul takes this call so seriously. What's his conclusion in verse 13? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, logically, I have the liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols because we know that idols are nothing. That meat sacrificed to them is thus not contaminated. We know that all that God created is good and to be received with thanksgiving. So I am at liberty to eat my lunch. He says, but more important than my lunch and my liberty to eat it is love. And you might say, but aren't these weaker Christians being unreasonable and illogical? I mean, shouldn't the stronger set them straight? Bible teacher Warren Worsby was considering this and he wrote, You don't always solve every problem with logic. The little child who's afraid of the dark will not be assured by argument, especially if the adult adopts a superior attitude. Knowledge can be a weapon to fight with or a tool to build with, depending on how it's used. If it puffs puffs up, then it cannot build up. Friends, the, the little child who's afraid isn't going to be convinced when you give them all their rational proof as to why there is no monster under the bed. And in the same way, we're invited to come alongside and to assure, not with logic, but with love. Paul concludes that the gospel calls us to love the weak, not by first setting them straight theologically, but by being patient, by protecting the weaker conscience, by freely choosing to sacrifice our right to do or not to do something, to participate in something or not to participate in something that might become a burden to them. Friends, this isn't a call for the stronger believer to pamper the weaker, but to edify them. This isn't a call for capitulation, but for edification. It's not about going backwards, but it's about slowing down that we might move forward together. This is about love. Because church, love is more important than my liberty. Love is more important than my lunch. So give me liberty that I might love. Friends, what does this have to do with us? Because none of us are worried that we're going to go to Hannaford after church and end up with hamburger that had been sacrificed to Athena or pork chops sacrificed to Aphrodite. And your lunch is unlikely to scandalize anyone except for those who are still a little creeped out by bologna because, I don't know, bologna creeps me out. I don't know what's in it. But that has nothing to do theologically, just practically. Friends, we might be tempted to To write a passage like this off as having no application to us today. We don't have meat sacrificed to idols anymore, do we? But friends, we need to recognize just how relevant this passage is to us today. Because first, this passage goes right to the heart and challenges our cultural understanding of individual rights and liberty. Our culture has declared that the individual has the right to do anything that he or she would like to as long as another human being is not endangered or harmed. So if you want to eat meat sacrificed to idols and another person has a hard time with it, deal with it. I'm just being authentic to myself. I'm being true to myself. 
It's my right. Self-expression and self-actualization are the ultimate goods that this society holds, and anything that would hinder them is inherently bad. And friends, this attitude has permeated Christ's church. As one commentator said, the exercise of personal freedom is never simply personal. Hear that again. The exercise of personal freedom is never simply personal. Friends, it's naive to believe that our actions, that my actions don't affect those around me and that our actions don't affect society. The exercise of personal freedom is never simply personal. Our liberty must always be practiced in light of love. And this chapter challenges our true understanding of liberty. Because too often we're told that what is liberty? Well, it means complete autonomy. It means unfettered, unrestricted exercise of my choice. Give me liberty and give me my lunch. We've been told that, we have, that to have liberty means to be unbound by anything and unbeholden to anyone. However, we find from this passage here and other passages in the Scripture that this is not a biblical understanding of liberty. A biblical understanding of liberty and freedom is not defined as the freedom to do whatever I want. That's how this culture defines liberty. The freedom to do whatever I want. But biblically, what is liberty in Christ? Friends, liberty, freedom in Christ, is the freedom to serve Christ and to love others. I'm not free to do whatever I want. I am free to serve Christ. I've been freed from my sin. I've been freed from other masters. I've been freed from my self-centeredness. Not freed now to do anything I want. I'm freed to do whatever He wants. And He who loves me and who loves His church has called me and has called you to love. And those who truly know and are known by God are characterized by love. I've been given liberty not so I can demand my lunch. But so now I'm free to love. Paul's letter to the Galatians focuses on the true freedom that is found in the gospel. And Paul makes abundantly clear throughout the letter to the Galatians that true liberty is not characterized by autonomy, but by love. True liberty is not autonomy, but love. He writes in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, For you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for yourself, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Church, the exercise of personal freedom is never personal. Liberty is the freedom to love and to serve one another. And church, this is why for the last almost three years, COVID has made such a train wreck of the church at large. Because as we look back over the last almost three years, everyone had knowledge. I know that masks don't work. I'm certain masks will keep us safe. I know vaccines will protect us. I'm sure vaccines will harm us. I know wearing a mask dishonors God by communicating a lack of trust in Him. I know for certain that wearing a mask honors God by submitting to the authorities and not causing disrepute on the name of Christ. I know that wearing a mask loves my neighbor not by not endangering them. I know that wearing a mask harms my neighbor by lying to them and perpetuating the lies and the fear. 
Friends, so much knowledge, so much certainty, so much puffed up. What happened to our love? What happened to our love, church? And at the same time, everybody was professing their knowledge and everybody's demanding liberty. I have a right not to wear a mask. I have a right to be safe, so you should be forced to get vaccinated. I have a right to go where I want, when I want. I have a right not to be exposed by you to COVID, so stay home. Give me liberty, we all cried. And what happened to our love church? We divided, puffed up by knowledge, demanding our liberty. And what happened to love? And maybe as we all emerge from COVID, the most important thing that any one of us could do in light of this passage is sit before the Lord and say, Lord, show me. Not how they failed to love. Show me how I failed to love over the past three years. When did knowledge puff me up? When did I demand liberty at the expense of love? Now, church, obviously we could apply this passage to more than COVID. COVID's just a really ready example. We could apply this teaching to drinking alcohol, watching graphic movies, watching Game of Thrones, to playing Dungeons and Dragons, to reading Harry Potter, participating in Halloween, doing yoga, or attending a same-sex wedding ceremony, and so much more. And when Paul picks up this same theme again in chapter 10, which we'll see in two weeks, we'll find there's even more for us to consider. Because we'll find that while idols are nothing and eating meat sacrificed to idols is permissible, what about eating meat? while in the banqueting hall of the pagan temple? How, how might our situation or our context affect the exercise of our liberty and what it means for us to practice love? Church, there's so much more for us to consider. But for today, we find here the principle that our liberty in Christ is given to us not for the purpose of getting our lunch. He's given us liberty in Christ that we might now give others His love. And church, may it be so. Let's pray. Father, help us in our weakness. Help us to love. Help us to give up our rights for the sake of one another. Help us to look to you and not to ourselves. Show us what it means. And show us where we failed to love. And may we be a people characterized by love. May the world look upon us, a world that's currently divided against itself, and may they see something different within us. May they see love. And may they know that you are amongst us because of the love that we have for one another. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.